Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risk and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week, we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the US, Europe, Asia, and Australia. I'm Rachel Wolcott, Senior Editor in London, hosting Episode 3 of Season 10. I'm speaking to Todd Errett, Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert in New York. Hey, Todd, it's been a while since we've done a podcast together. Looking forward to talking to you about crypto. Great. Thanks for having me, Rachel. A pleasure. We've been publishing Outlook pieces for 2024 throughout January. Uh, Todd and I, along with our colleagues Tron Bogan and Ye Zhang Zhang, worked together on a crypto outlook that covered how crypto regulation is moving ahead in the EU with MICA, the UK very slowly, Singapore and Hong Kong are both looking to become uh, crypto hubs, but not the US. There's a link to that piece in the show notes because what we're going to discuss today is a few new developments Todd wrote about last week covering the big US story about spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds. Todd, these ETFs have become emblematic of the Securities and Exchange Commission's approach to crypto. Basically, no, we'll see you in court. Tell me what's happening with the SEC and these funds. I think you characterized it pretty well, Rachel, is, um, you know, the SEC has um, pretty steadfastly taken the position of opposition to new regulations or or approvals or products or anything. They've been, you know, as most crypto uh, participants in the United States say, very crypto unfriendly. Um, you know, whereas other jurisdictions around the world, obviously, you know, regulators are moving forward, you know, MICA, et cetera, um, you know, Singapore, other regulatory regimes are, you know, putting forth, you know, extensive frameworks surrounding, you know, this new asset class. Um, the U.S. has taken approach um, to basically just say no. And um, interestingly, um, what really kicked off this, uh, the Bitcoin ETF um, discussions and challenges, there have been applications filed for more than 10 years that have just been summarily shot down by dozens of firms. Um, they've gone through the process and every, you know, every 90 days or, you know, through the whole process, the SEC just found another reason to say no. Um, until eventually um, a firm called Grayscale, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, um, had already been approved for a different type of product. It was basically a closed-end trust um, that held a, a large quantity of Bitcoin. I, I think it was, you know, 20 plus billion in Bitcoin. It was the largest, you know, um, you know, publicly available investment vehicle to hold Bitcoin. Grayscale had applied to convert to a, an exchange-traded fund where essentially it would have been beneficial. It would have been. It would have provided better liquidity. It would have provided better pricing mechanisms. Um, the The application was denied by the SEC last year. So the Grayscale actually sued the SEC and went to court. Um, 
a judge ruling in August last year, and this is a three-panel judge in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, um, and I say a three-judge panel, I think that's important because it was a bipartisan group of appointed judges. Um, I think it was two Democrats and one Republican appointed judge ruled against the, the SEC in Grayscale's favor and said that their denials to convert this to a to a um, exchange-traded fund was arbitrary and capricious, and you need to go back to the drawing board. You, you need to come up with a better answer as to why this is why this is uh, um, uh, being you know declined. So that really set the stage for all the other applicants, and I think it forced the SEC's hand where the SEC had to sit down at the table with all these applicants and figure it out. What, what could be done? What were the finer points they needed to iron out to get these products approved? So it goes without saying they eventually did approve and they've never done this before. They approved 11 products all at the same time. They lined up all of their applications and approved them all on the same date on January 11th. So that removed basically any, any first mover advantage, whoever was at the front of the queue to get the approval first and kind of leveled the playing field for all of them, and granting an approval you know, to all 11 firms all at once. And we're talking here the biggest firms you know, BlackRock and Fidelity and Invesco, some of the biggest, you know, obviously BlackRock is the largest investment manager in the world. Um, so I, I think the SEC couldn't give a first mover advantage to them. It would have showed preference, but, you know, anybody else they would have would have been showing preference to. So they, they lined them all up and, and approved them all at the same time. And they all went live at the same time. They all went live on January 11th. In doing so, they did kick off a bit of a fee war. Um, you know, most of them had filed in their initial applications that they'd be 50 or 75 basis points or 100 basis points annual management fees. Fees collapsed all the way down to 20 basis points generally across the board. Some of them offered zero basis points for the first year if you held for a year. Um, so they or if uh, until they got to a certain asset under management threshold, they would kick in 20 basis points. So the fee structures now are very competitive at, you know, in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 basis points for most of them. So you mentioned uh, Grayscale had the highest fees and that seems to have cost them some that and the uh, the FTX situation we we were talking about that's costed them cost them some assets under management. Yes, the Grayscale um, fund, I think, pr prior to be prior to the conversion, was at two or two and a half percent, two hundred and fifty basis points. Call it that's a lot, which was historically very high, but it was the only product out there that that was doing what they were doing. So I think they lowered it to one hundred and fifty basis points. Um, and I think I think what you saw, and that was the the calculation that a lot of people were trying to do to estimate what is the real demand for this product. Um, you know, Fidelity and BlackRock in in the first three or four days brought in you know a, a billion plus in in money. Um, I think they said across all products it was somewhere around five billion in money flowed in. Um, 
However, there were net outflows of the GBTC Grayscale product. Um, what further kind of clouded that calculation um, was coincidental to the timing of all of this was the FTX bankruptcy liquidations occurred where FTX held shares of this GBTC um, and they had a couple billion dollars worth. So that got sold as well. Um, it was planned to do at the time of the conversion because the, for liquidity reasons and for the fee reasons and it, prior to it converting to an ETF, it had actually been trading at a slight discount to its net asset value. Once it became an ETF, it, it, the, the, the discount to its net asset value narrowed to zero. So um, there, there were a confluence of factors that all happened at the same time. Um, initially, prices, you know, a lot of people, the conventional wisdom was prices of Bitcoin were going to be driven higher because of this new demand. And people were excited about that. I, I, from my old days on trading desks, you know, the, the, the comment we would always say is buy the rumor, sell the news. You know, you have to be in ahead of the, ahead of the event, not at the event. And I, I think, you know, the, the significant run up leading you know, in Bitcoin prices into the event was pretty well expected. Um, you know, you saw prices go from the, I don't know, the low to mid 30,000 to well above 40, 45, 47,000, I think was the, the peak, which happened at about the time of the announcement. And, and now things have settled back down around 40,000. So a little bit of a disappointment for the uh, what are what are they called the Bitcoin believers or I don't know what they're called whatever they're called <laughs> they're whatever they're called I mean just one last thing on this uh, this uh, ETF launch point um, we were just talking about the custody issue I was telling you I just read an article about the fact that all of these funds save one are using Coinbase as a, a custodian, and this has brought a little bit of concentration risk. Do you think that's something the regulator is going to be keeping an eye on? I, I think obviously um, one of the aspects that one of the issues that they were trying to iron out in all these applications is, you know, this: are we using, you know, real safe custodians, registered licensed custodians. And Coinbase is the only one in the U.S. who's already, you know, um, I guess, you know, they're, they're considered the gold standard um, for crypto custody. Um, so, yes, all of it, it, it's not surprising that they're all using Coinbase, but it, um, it, it does raise the question, you know, only having one, one crypto custodian does for all these different funds. However, we're, we're still not talking a huge percentage of the total crypto market. These, these funds are only, you know, in aggregate $5 billion or so. One day they probably will grow a lot. Um, there they could, um, you know, which, you know, raises the question down the road. I would, I would expect there to be more custodians that enter the, um, the marketplace. However, right now, the, the accounting rules and some of the obstacles, you know, traditional finance firms have not entered this marketplace yet. So, you know, some of the largest asset custodians out there, call it the State Streets or the Bank of New York Mellons, that, that are some of the custodians for, 
so many of the investment assets out there, you know, really have not delved into the crypto um, marketplace yet. I'm sure it's just a matter of time. It, it probably is only a matter of time. Because these same uh, players are all looking at digital assets. People are talking about um, uh, central clearing houses for, for cryptos, for digital assets. So I think this is all building up and this is kind of a first, well, at least for the U.S., a, first, a big first step. Now, in true kind of crypto fashion, there's always some like uh, Twitter slash X related hijinks going on in uh, the in the crypto world. You know, it's usually I think um, basically pump and dump schemes. But the SEC had a bit of a snafu with its Twitter account. What, what happened, and what's the what's the big lesson here? I put it in the category of you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> It's it's, it's it's so it's so crazy. Um, the SEC's Twitter account was hacked the day before the announcement, and an announcement went out saying that the products we've approved it, and the press release looked really legit and everything else. Um, and it was just the day before, and it did cause pr- prices to spike momentarily before the SEC quickly said, we have not approved, we lost control of our Twitter account or X account. Um, Upon further investigation, it came out that what apparently or allegedly has happened or did happen was that a user, an SEC authorized user of the Twitter account, um, their phone SIM card was stolen and their phone was basically hacked, giving them access to the Twitter account. However, Twitter immediately came out and said, this was not our fault. They did not have two-factor authentication set up on their account, which is, I mean, it can't be any more embarrassing, frankly, for if you think about it, a government agency that is issuing, you know, the equivalent of public press releases, you know, a communications department to not have safeguards on on an, on their communications, public communications, um, which is what these are. Anything on on Twitter is yeah. or on X is considered to be a public, official, you know, statement or communications by the agency. So I, I think it raises the question. It's very embarrassing for the agency to have not had two factor authentication set up on their on one of their key communications drivers. Um, what makes it even more embarrassing was on October 24th, uh, Gensler himself tweeted on Twitter X, um, you know, just a reminder for everybody to use strong passwords or passphrases, set up two-factor authentication and keep your account alerts turned on on, on messaging devices to, to closely monitor these things. So even though they didn't, and they said it had been turned off for approximately six months. Oops. So, <laughs> yeah, correct. Oops. <laughs> it, it also shows some of the activity that goes goes on in the in the crypto space that not everybody involved in crypto is is a, a good guy who correct what wants to see the right thing happening. That this seems. Obviously, 
well, to me anyway, it, and I say obviously, it could be um, a you know, social engineering attempt on a, a vulnerable person at the SEC to manipulate the market and tr- trade off of that. Or people might have just been doing it for fun. I mean, anything is possible in this new world of, of uh, trading that we live in today. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. If I can circle back, Rachel, to to your, you know, our opening commentary where we talked about the U.S. regulatory approach really has been to, as I said, just say no, whether it mm-hmm. was to Bitcoin ETFs or to regulatory clarity. They've they've brought enforcement action after enforcement action. Most of the crypto industry really takes issue with, um. You know, they like to say, you know, give us regulatory clarity. Although you've said, come in and talk to us and let's work together. Those instances really just haven't occurred. And really the SEC's enforcement, whether it's cleaning up FTX after the fact or cleaning up the frauds or charging entities after the fact, um, really has created this kind of dark cloud over the industry where, you know, they've charged Coinbase with acting as an unregistered broker dealer and exchange. Um, SEC has been asking for regulatory clarity on some of these issues for years and the SEC wouldn't meet with them. Um, So in essence now, I think one of the bigger events that occurred, bigger than the final inevitable approval of the ETF which the courts forced the SEC's hand in because of the grayscale ruling, Coinbase is now in court challenging the SEC, saying, you know, I I listened to like four hours of testimony the other day where they said, you cannot unilaterally say that every one of these assets on our platform are securities because many of them do not pass the Howey test, which is the, the Supreme Court ruling from 40 plus years ago that determines whether something is a security or not. There unquestionably are digital assets or crypto assets that are trading on blockchains that are not securities. And the SEC refuses to acknowledge that. It's like this this elephant in the room that they just wanna ignore. There are other uses on blockchains for these, whether they're they're being used in gaming or whether they're be, being used in in social media, you know, there's there's different areas of crypto and blockchain assets than finance. DeFi is the term that you know the SEC has lumped all this together and says it's all these are all securities. This is all DeFi. It's peer to peer. It's it's decentralized finance. They're ignoring the fact or just 
oblivious to the fact that there's, you know, decentralized physical infrastructure that's going on. There's social media, there's gaming, there's other types of utility tokens that are happening, that are emerging, that really are are not securities by definition. And that's where we, we really need a legislative solution in the United States. However, it, we can't seem to get a legislative solution in the United States. Congress, there's a number of people in the House um, that have put forth solutions. There's been a couple of Senate solutions, all to die at the Senate Banking Committee. Um, the, the industry really needs some legislative clarity on some of these and you know we'll have to see what ends up happening, but uh, it it really is 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 a legal quagmire um, that that just really needs to be resolved, so that the United States can then move forward and remain competitive with with Europe and Singapore and South Korea and Japan and all these other places that have have actually clarified what the difference is in some of these uh, these assets or tokens or what have you. You know, the U.S. needs a mica of some sort. Yeah. Well, and that's something that the U.K. is uh, slowly working on as well. And I just had in my inbox today uh, something from ESMA. They've, I think it's one of the first consultations that they've issued around mica, and it's about reverse solicit- solicitation around crypto assets. It's, you know, just fresh today. Um, I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but I mean, one, another thing that's really clear, Todd, is that the ETFs, this isn't going to be the end of it. People or firms are going to continue to want to push and launch products. Uh, uh, we were talking about some of these uh, leverage products potentially coming to market and I mean, this sounds like uh, uh, you know, product virtualization on an epic scale. And <laughs> I was hoping you could t- you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because yes, there have already been applications filed for leveraged and inverse and um, and Ethereum, which is another um, uh, you know crypto asset. So the floodgates are beginning to open. Um, where we go from here is, remains to be seen. Interestingly, um, many of the traditional finance broker-dealer asset management firms are still steering clear of the products. Many of the brokerage firms out there um, are not allowing you know customers to buy them. Uh, Vanguard was pretty outspoken saying, no, they, we, we just don't believe in it and we're not going to prove the product on our on our platforms, um, yeah, you know, for lots for retail, for for retail investors, um, you know, the Edward Jones and Merrill Lynch's and some of those, you know, you know, call it, uh, you know, retail facing firms, um, just say we, you know, we need to look at these products more closely, and you know, a, a lot of those firms, you know, have not ever allowed, uh, you know, the inverse or the leveraged products or some of the other high risk products just from a suitability aspect, Um, you know, and they have every right to do that. And many of them do, Um, 
you know, some of the others, you know, Fidelity and Schwab quickly approved the products. However, they, they did require, um, you know, acknowledgement from the customers that they knew what they were buying. They were buying, a, you know, a higher risk, um, you know, different type of product. Um, the regulators have come out and SEC and FINRA specifically in the last year have really warned about these products to firms. Um, SEC enforcement priorities, uh, FINRA exam priorities, clearly stated digital assets are an area of heightened scrutiny. Um, it, it, it will be only a matter of time before we start to see enforcement actions coming to, you know, some poor individual is going to get burned and they're going to file an arbitration or enforcement case, the SEC or regulator will bring enforcement cases saying, you know, you, you failed on suitability tests. You shouldn't have sold this product. You, you know, and so I think firms really need to be careful here, make sure that, uh, you know, firms, their registered reps are, informed, educated, and monitoring very closely. And, you know, firms are looking at the sales practices where these marked as solicited or unsolicited sales of the products, um, you know, look at historical risk patterns of those customers. Um, you know, you don't want grandma who's never taken a risk in anything. Now, all of a sudden have a quarter of a portfolio invested in one of these things. That's a red flag, enormous red flag. So these firms really need to be careful around these. And I think most firms, frankly, have those safeguards in place and they try to monitor this. But it, I, I think it goes without saying to be extra, extra diligent here. I think that's a really good point because there has been so much fraud in crypto assets, not in the firms themselves, but fraudsters uh, con uh, convincing, you mentioned grandma, uh, convincing grandma or grandpa or somebody else to invest in a fraudulent crypto scheme. I was talking to someone this morning who said that the U.S. government is now saying it's about five million, no, five billion a year in these uh, pig butchering scams alone, and these go all over the world. And I don't want to give anybody any ideas, but I could see people using, you know, piggybacking on the, these ETF approvals to to scam people. In other types of products, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. has nothing to do with the firms that are selling them. What, one of the one of the aspects, I one of the aspects on the crime um, numbers, um, and there there are. There, there's a small industry of, I call them crypto data analytics firms. Um, and, you know, not to name names, but there's th three or four or five firms out there that are doing a really good job tracking, um, you know, the the illicit activity and all the activity on chains. Um, according to some of the data that has been released, and I found this really interesting, um, and I'm, I don't, I'm sorry I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, um, the total numbers of call it global scams or frauds or hacks or thefts in crypto assets 
actually has declined in the last several years. If you were to separate, and this is a big if, if you separated Russia out, because Russia, with the sanctions that were imposed due to the, the Ukraine invasion, you had all these massive sanctions now slapped on Russia. So any activity with any Russian entity was now considered criminal. So the, the numbers are up year over year, slightly, not huge, but the portion that is directly attributable to Russia has exploded. So it, it's it, you got to really look between the lines here and say how much do we really know about you know these these illicit activities? I think the industry and these analytics firms are really trying to do trying to get their arms around where the frauds are happening and where they're not happening. And the the, the they I think they they're pretty good at pinpointing where the bad action is happening, where the where the hacks are happening. And interestingly, the the Russia component exploded and, it, and it, it's logical frankly you know when everything with russia's name on it is is now sanctioned and illegal <laughs> that, that that aspect is going to go up so yeah and there is a lot of crypto activity going on like you describe i, I can put a link in the show notes to a podcast that helen chan and i did last year talking about that and also we can link to a couple of uh, interesting r- reports that you alluded to from some of these uh, blockchain analytic firms. I just read a really great one about um, pig butchering scammers using Tether, and it's it's definitely worth keeping on top of these things because the, this is another piece of the puzzle for crypto exchanges, no matter where you are, is that you need to be checking your customers and doing all the customer uh, identity checks and KYC. Just look at the Binance find from last year, and that will explain to you why it's a really important thing to do. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much, Todd. it's great talking to you again. Hopefully we'll have something to uh, talk about again in the coming months about crypto. I'm, sh- I'm sure we will. There's, there's always some, there's always something happening and, you know, I could go on for, for hours on this stuff, but uh, it, no, it's been great to catch up and uh, look forward to the next discussion. Excellent. So that's it for this week's Compliance Clarified. Your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice, or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.